G'day, g'day. This is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. Before we get started with the episode, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everybody for helping us reach our 50th episode. Obviously, I Was Only 19 by Red Gum is a very special song, and to have that as our 50th episode makes it even more amazing for us. And to think they said we'd never make it. They said you'd never make it, never make it, never make it, never make it. A huge thanks to the amazing musicians and artists who we've interviewed and have given us their time. I still need to pinch myself sometimes having spoken with these absolute legends. You know, my boyhood idols. That's just amazing. Thank you to the artists, managers and agents who have helped organise these interviews and to the wonderful record companies who have supported the podcast. A huge, huge thank you. Josh and I are absolutely stoked to reach our 50th episode milestone. It's a pretty big deal for us. And to think of some of the episodes that we've got coming up, some absolute legends of Aussie music. So make sure you subscribed via whatever platform you're listening to. And yeah, we're going to just keep these episodes coming. If you could do Awesome Aussie Songs a huge favour and share the episode on Facebook or Instagram or whatever social media you use, or even just tell somebody about the podcast and If they like Aussie music, I'm sure they're going to find an episode or two that they'll love. So just do us a favor and give us a shout out. That'd be much appreciated. So I'll get out of here now. So thanks again and onwards with the next 50 episodes. The year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on Red Gum and the song I Was Only 19, A Walk in the Light Green. Our special guest is the writer of this iconic song, John Schumann. And can you tell me, doctor, why I still can't get to sleep? Night time's just a jungle dark and a barking M16. And what's this rash that comes and goes? Can you tell me what it means? God help me. I was only 19. At Awesome Aussie Songs, we don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that I Was Only 19 is one of the most important songs ever written in this country. In the Great Australian Songbook, it sits alongside the likes of Banjo Patterson's Waltzing Matilda in terms of the songs that have resonated throughout the community. Since its release in 1983, the impact of the song has been simply immeasurable but one thing that's for sure and certain, it gave some understanding as to what our diggers went through during the Vietnam War. There's no point to beat around the bush. The treatment dished out to our Vietnam veterans on their return to Australia was absolutely shameful. Luckily there were people about like John Schumann, who called it out for what it was. The authenticity and detail of Oz Only 19 is what makes it such an emotional song. It tells the story of John's future brother-in-law Mick Storen. The song's title is not just for effect. Mick was indeed just 19 years old when he was shipped off to fight. He was a soldier in 3rd Platoon, 8th Company, 6th Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment. I was only 19 held a mirror up to society in its views. Thankfully Australia was ashamed of what it saw. It awakened the collective conscience of our nation. The seeds of healing were now sown, and the first step in righting the wrongs of the past took place when the Vietnam Veterans Welcome Home Parade was held in 1987. But don't take our word for it. 
Let's see how pop star turned soldier Normie Rowe believes I Was Only 19 was significant in helping to begin heal the wounds. I have to say that the biggest amount of thanks that we could ever have uh, would need to go to John Schumann and Redgum for recording and, and releasing I Was Only 19 because it was at that moment which created for the, uh, the, whole, uh, the whole nation an aha moment, it's sort of like, Ah, oh dear, oh, what have we done? John was born in Adelaide in 1953. He was from the generation that when he turned 18, he could have been conscripted and made to go to Vietnam. Fortunately for John, his number never came up, but he grew up with guys that had served, and for those who had made it back home alive, it was confronting to see the way the war had changed them. Yeah, it did. Um, I, I, when I was a young bloke, I, uh, somehow or other, most of my friends were always a couple of years older. So that meant that I had, had friends who actually went to Vietnam. And as you say, when I came back, um, they were in a, a, another much older older gang. Uh, and I wasn't a member. They they drank with a, you know, we all used to go down the pub and have beers and play pool and chike around the place. But when they came back, these guys, some of these guys drank with a with a pretty fierce desperation, and uh, yeah, it was they were, they were very clearly something had happened to them in Vietnam, something that I wasn't a part of, and um, they were suddenly very older and out of my social and emotional circle. Which was quite sad, actually. But I, I, you know, I recognised instinctively then that it was a uh, you know the price that you pay for being you know a soldier in combat. Um, but I, it, it never left me the, you know, the sort of, you know, the thousand yard stare and, and the, you know, the, the dysfunction, the, you know, the fierce drinking, the risk taking, um, all of those, all of those things I watched, you know, I mean, uh, you know, but I was watching these things happen from an increasing distance because, uh, you know, the friendship that I had with them before they, Left for Vietnam was comprehensively fractured by, by, um, by their experience and, and and the people they were when they came home. One experience that has stuck with John was the night he found himself in a car with a returned soldier he knew. Yeah, I was in the back seat of an I think it was an HD Holden, screaming up uh, Upper Sturt Road at Belair, thrashing this thing in second, and I just remember being quite frightened. Um, and I remember him, you know. I remember saying, "Look, I think we better s- slow down a bit." You know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I don't like the risk or I don't like the danger or whatever it was. And he just sort of, he laughed at me nastily, really, and said, "You don't even know what risk or danger are." And I, 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 I and I was fairly sure that 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 risk taking, that you know, eternal sort of search for. You know, another adrenaline high was was a function of um, of uh, being in Vietnam, and in fact, he he did a year and volunteered uh, to go back. So, um, you know, he was a bit of an adrenaline junkie. There are many stars that needed to align for John to eventually write. I was only nineteen. However, the first of these was the night he met his future wife Denise, or Denny as she's known. And obviously, yes, she's the same Denny that's mentioned in the opening of the song. Mum and Dad and Denny saw the passing out parade at Puckerpunyal. It was a long march from cadets. 
Oh, I met Denny um, in about, I think, about 1981, I reckon. Uh, I was touring with Redgum, but I was living in Adelaide, but not spending very much time there or here, which is where I am now, because um, I was based in Melbourne. And um, I had been a teacher uh, for about four or five years before I left uh, the education department and went on the road with Redgum. And um, I would still catch up with some of my old colleagues when I when I got um, I got back to Adelaide. So uh, we met at a dinner party, um, which was um, hosted by one of my ex-teacher colleagues. Um, she she had no idea who I was or anything about red gum or you know she had no idea. So I found that very attractive. The treatment John saw dished out to those who had served didn't sit well with him. And naturally, as a songwriter who voiced his social conscience, he felt a need to pick up his guitar and do what he does best. Around this time, Cold Chisel had released Kaysan, which was of course written by the legendary Don Walker. As great a song as it is, it's factually incorrect, as no Australian troops ever served in Kaysan. It was an American base, and John knew if he was ever going to write a song about the Vietnam War, he wanted to do it from an Aussie soldier's perspective. He knew to write the song authentically, he would have to speak with a Vietnam vet. Denny invited her family one night to come and watch her boyfriend's band Red Gun perform. Along with her parents, she brought her brother Mick Storer into the gig as well. Mick had served in Vietnam, but John had been worded up that Mick never discussed his time in the war, and he probably wasn't going to tell his story to some left-wing folk rocker who was dating his little sister. When John decided to ask Mick if he was willing to discuss his war experiences with him, he wasn't too nervous, thanks to some good old Dutch courage. Well, yeah, kind of. Uh, well, not not. At, when I popped the question, I wasn't because I was, you know, on the wings of a six-pack after a gig, so I was full of adrenaline and beer. But, um, look, I really liked Mick. We, we, you know, we got along quite well. I had heard from his mum and his sisters that he never talked about Vietnam, um, and I was kind of warned, really, not warned, it was suggested that I didn't raise the subject unless he raised it. But I, I don't know, we sort of got along quite well and, and I just wondered if he would sh- share his experiences with me. Um, which surprisingly, you know, he, you know, he did. And, and it, it surprised his family more than anything else, I think. But um, anyway, eventually, I think, I can't remember when that, that was exactly, but it was some months down the track when I was back in Adelaide. Uh, by this time, I had moved out of the house that I was renting in Adelaide and I was living in Melbourne, but I I come back um, for for um, for a holiday and, uh, and Denny had a house uh, in the hills. Um, so I sort of, I was going out with her at the time, so I hooked in with her and... Uh, um, that was when um, I invited Mick up for the chat. I remember he came with a little a box of um, his Vietnam memorabilia. You know, he had some maps and some a few slides with mould growing on them, a few printed photographs, a couple of badges. You know, just odd odd things. And and we, I remember we looked at the slides and we looked at the photos and we drank a fair bit. And I. Just remember, I, I'd never done anything like this before, and I was 
trying to be very careful and respectful, but I really wanted to get on the inside of, you know, a Vietnam veteran's head. Anyway, um, it kind of worked, um, and we had this long, quite long conversation. We drank a lot of beer and talked a lot, and, and I I think I wanted to get the the detail. I wanted to understand about the, you know, the sights and the sounds and the smell and, and all that sort of because I'd been in Asia myself quite a bit um, before I met Mick, so while I hadn't been to Vietnam, I'd been to Southeast Asia, and it's all pretty much the same country, you know. Um, so I was, yeah. I, I, so I, I, I've also uh, worked out um, instinctively that if you want to write a song that people um, stand up and pay attention to, you've got to get the detail right. It's got to be credible. Um, I mean, I don't write songs about love and you know broken hearts and you know unrequited love and you know, somebody else's girlfriend. I'm just not interested. Um, you know, there are lots of other people who write that sort of drivel. I don't care. Um, I, I'm more interested in um, in Australian stories and what we can learn from them about ourselves and the country in which we live, where we've come from and where we're going. Um, so I've learned that if, if you're going to tell those stories, you need to get uh, – the detail right i think i learned that with one of the very earliest songs i wrote called peter the cabby was on a on our uh, uh red gum's first album and um i'd been driving cabs so i knew what i was talking about but because i described the life and the work of a cab driver the other cab drivers that i knew they loved the song you know because they knew it was actually real you know, and the, all the imagery and the detail was real. So I knew that if I was going to write a song about a Vietnam veteran that stuck, I had to get uh, the detail right. So that's really what I was I was sort of after. I was after a narrative and I was after the detail. Oh, Peter's a cabbie on Adelaide roads And in five o'clock traffic that's a hard road to hoe Hunts for its family in a holding with a two-way and meter And there's no air conditioning where he plies his trade On the green plate stand by the Rundle Arcade Sits and he waits for the privilege of driving you home No Mr Muzak in the front of his cab Just a crackling voice Dog-eared road map and a torch and a biro Sliding around on the dash And your life's in his hands when they're gripped on the wheel The water pump rattles and that Michelin squeal He's been driving for years Sometimes it feels like forever Very well, your city of gardens He'll take you from town Drop you at Martin Peak Our five minutes If you think that's easy, just try it He can change a flat tyre in three minutes flat Loops his own car lion flat on his back Tunes up his motor with a timing light in his ear 
it could be, it would be, it could be It's sterling, sun may be burning Fog may be swirling, but Peter's still driving All down that endless white line Could be the morning, midday or midnight He'll sell you a ride His yellow roof light to a drag operator Gives him a job to go home Denny again played a major part in the creation of I Was Only 19. Mick may have told John his story, but Denny made sure John was equipped with a tape recorder and some blank cassettes to record their conversation. John then took these tapes with him when he was on tour with Redgum. We were spending a lot of time in a Mitsubishi not-so-squeezy star wagon, you know, dr- driving up and down the, um, you know, the east coast of Australia. So, um, you know, I didn't listen... Uh, to those tapes, you know, and nothing else for nine months. But, you know, you can only listen to so much music on your Walkman. You can only tell the same joke so many times as you drive around the country. So, um, you know, when I got I got tired of all the other bullshit, I would I'd put these tapes in and have a listen. And I, 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 I as I've said a million times, I didn't know what I was going to do with the story. I had no idea. I just listened to it again and again and again and again. Somehow it must have sort of, you know, found a crack in my psyche or something and wormed its way in. After spending some time listening to the tapes, for John, the actual pen-to-paper writing of the song turned out to be an incredibly fast process. Yeah, it did. It was it was quite an extraordinary. Um, well, no, not extraordinary because because songs songs do happen like that. I've I've written, you know, I hesitate to remind you know you and your listeners that I have written other songs um, yeah I um, I so sometimes songs just come tumbling out sometimes you have to work hard at them this was one that came tumbling out but it's really quite um, interesting in that because uh, often the ones that come tumbling out are don't require the forensic detail that 19 required if 19 was going to work Um, but somehow it did for which I'm eternally grateful. One condition Mick had given John was that he wanted to okay the song before Redgum could record it. Mick wanted to ensure the song was coming from the right place and it wouldn't reflect negatively on his fellow Vietnam vets. While Mick was supposed to be the first to hear I was only 19 he wasn't officially the first person to hear this iconic song. Despite his promise, John just wanted to make sure he did indeed have what he thought he had. I was in Melbourne at the time. I, I think I played it to a friend of mine who was a journalist, um, and I, I can't remember who it was because I had a few mates who were who wrote about music, and uh, and I know that uh, he was pretty impressed. But I think he was the only one. Because I promised Mick that I would I play it to him first, but I couldn't contain myself. Um, so anyway, when I got back to Adelaide, and I think that was just before Christmas, 
um, we had a, a family dinner and I pulled him aside and played him, played him the track, uh, the song. And, uh, he was pretty, he was pretty knocked out. He looked at me like just kind of like silently. And I thought, I've really, I've really done it here. I've really, you know, I've, I've, I've fractured the relationship with the bloke who's going to be my brother-in-law. But, um, but it turns out that he was just knocked, so knocked out that somebody could get it so right so quickly. He, he had a few, uh, comments that he wanted to make he wanted a few changes but they were really a matter of 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 fact and uh, detail he i just made up a name um of the person who kicked them out because i didn't know who these blokes were so i said oh tommy kicked them um a mine the day that mankind kick the moon and he said no we didn't have a tommy in our platoon and i didn't really care because it what that wasn't the point but it was the point for him but the fact was he didn't want me to use the real name of the bloke who kicked the mine because that was skipper hines and and he was a he was the skipper of the platoon and he was the one who who kicked the mine and it was a bit close and Mick didn't want Skipper Hines' family to have to relive the trauma again. So he he said, I'll oh, say Frankie kicked the mine because Frankie was actually very close to the mine when it went off, but he didn't tread on it. Um, and But he said, you're going to have to ask Frankie if he will, if he will take the rap for tre- treading on the, on the mine. So... Um, so I changed it to Frankie, and I went to see Frankie um, when we were touring through Tarthra, and I played him the song, uh, and he was he was um, he was really knocked sideways by the song, and he was also, but he was quite happy for me to use his name, and and more importantly, he was quite happy to uh, uh, promote it uh, with me, go out on the road, and. And do all the interviews, which was absolutely fabulous because he was a, you know, he looked like a little Australian veteran, you know, and unfortunately, Frankie got pretty badly knocked around by that mine. So he, he limped and he had a caliper. So, you know, the optics of the whole thing were just absolutely sensational. There was this, um, you know, fiery left wing, you know, firebrand, you know, with long hair and a long beard and this young soldier from, the Mally with a caliper, you know, and um, yeah, so it was a it was a pretty formidable team. After getting both Mick and Frankie's approval to record the song, John now thought that he had all his bases covered. However, the opposition to Oz Only 19 came a little closer to home. With the exception of violinist Hugh MacDonald, John's other fellow bandmates in Red Gum refused to record the song. No, well, they weren't convinced at all. <clears throat> um, it was shortly after I met I met Frankie that we were, I think we were up at Bateman's Bay or something, next town up the road, and the other songwriter in the band, Michael Atkinson, came and knocked on my door and said that the band had had a meeting and um, they didn't want to record I Was Only 19 because they didn't think it was going to work. Um, I mean, I can kind of 
I can kind of understand where the thinking came from. I I suspect it might have been that um, Michael Michael and I, we were the two guys in the band who wrote the songs, and we're quite different um, writers. Michael is very well educated musically. You know, he um, I think he has a degree from the Elder Conservatorium at the Adelaide University, so he really knows what he's doing. I'm I don't know what I'm doing. I've got no idea. You know, I just I pick up a guitar and play a few chords and make up a tune and write some words. Um, and I think the record companies always chose my songs to be the singles. Um, because my songs were the probably the the more sort of you know audience friendly. You know, my songs were simpler and easier to get into, less complicated. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, but of course, you know, the argument of the band was: well, they've done one or two or three of my my songs as uh, as singles. And they hadn't really worked as singles. Well, the fact is that Red Gum was not a singles band, and up until nineteen, we were comprehensively ignored by most of the radio stations. Anyway, they didn't like the fact that we were political, and they didn't like my voice, and you know they had more excuses than a pregnant nun as to why they they wouldn't play Red Gum. Um, and so, I think uh, Michael was a bit cheesed off that you know that that the the songs that I had written hadn't broken us onto the airwaves uh, and that his songs hadn't been given a chance. I understand that. Um, you know, so I think I think they were just, you know, they just didn't want to do it. At, at that time also, we, we just we just finished an album. It was our, probably our least successful album called Brown Rice and Kerosene. And it was it really was the wrong album for us. It was produced by somebody who's a great producer, but uh, but didn't understand the band and didn't understand what we were on about. And he just, you know, he just sort of turned the band into something we weren't. So anyway, that wasn't a massively successful album. So we, uh, you know, we were touring to pay that off. Uh, and we didn't have any money to record uh, a new album. And if we were going to record 19, it was going to be a single because we didn't have any more songs for an album at that stage. And uh, you know, so I understand why they didn't want to do it, but I thought that it was important, so I went ahead anyway. And I said, look, um, you know, I know we're all in red gum and everything, but basically as far as the public is concerned, it's my face and my voice, so I'm going to record this. You don't have to have anything to do with it. I'm going to record it. We'll put it out under red gum cause, uh, because nothing is going to, um, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. It's not going to do any damage, um, you know, and that's that's the contract, that's the vehicle that we had. So the only person who played uh, on the actual track uh, from the band was a guy called uh, Hugh McDonald, who was, who, was, uh, who was playing guitar and violin in Red Gum. And... Uh, and he came on to play with me in my band called the Vagabond Crew uh, after that, quite a number of years after that. So Huey was the only one who played uh, on, on, on 19, even though it was released under the name of Red Gum.
John and Hugh decided they would donate any recording royalties they received for I Was Only 19 to the Vietnam Veterans Association of Australia. Once recorded and set in wax, the other members of Red Gum quickly realised the song was a game changer for the band. Oh yeah, look, they understood, you know, that it was a, you know, that they, they, they could see the power of it. Um, you know, they could see the, you know, the the changes that it made, the difference that it made. But um, yeah, no, that, look, and they were fine. I mean, look, fa- fact was that Red Gum, we were going to chuck it in um, once we paid the the um, uh, the album off Brown Rice and Kerencino. If we were going to record a live album. Uh, and that was going to be uh, Red Gum Swan Song, and uh, and I was going to get married and 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 go back teaching because that was my profession. Um, but you know, I was only nineteen, um, went through the roof, and uh, and of course that just changed everything, as these things do. As the songwriters for Red Gum, Michael and John brought different strengths to the band. Yeah, I think it probably, you know, has to do with the fact that while Michael did a degree in um, in music, I uh, I did a degree in English literature and I and Australian literature and I taught and I taught English uh, at high school. So I actually, you know, understand poetry and understand poetic devices and and you can understand something and not be able to do it, but mercifully. You know, I sort of understand how language works and I'm able to deploy it moderately effectively when I'm at my best. But it's, but it, look, it's a gift and the gift is not always there. You know, you just have to wait for the, the you know, the, the, the angel of song to, the, you know, sit on your shoulder and whisper in your ear. Nick was happy to share his story with John, but he wasn't prepared to be the face of the song and join him on the publicity trail. Nick is not a, He's not a somebody who shoots his mouth off and you know and and tells his story over and over and over again. I I don't know whether he found it a cathartic experience or not. I I still don't know why he agreed to to tell me his story. Um, I think we you know we instinctively liked each other and he liked the band. He liked what we did and I think instinctively he could see that you know something good could come out of this, but he didn't know what. Mick's a very private person noticed that um, in the years following I was only 19 and it's cementing itself in the in Australia's cultural pantheon if you like um, lots of people know who Frankie Hunt is because Frank's a different person Frank stepped up and you know he understood instantly that this this was something that could help bring the veteran home and you know he Frankie likes to tell stories and he likes to be you know, he likes to be, you know, in the limelight. He's not frightened of the microphone. He's not frightened of the spotlight. Um, and so he was the one who came on the road with me and promoted the, the song. Mick is much, um, yeah, much more retiring, you know. He told his story. I wrote the song. And he really stayed out of the limelight. And, and, and the few times that he was dragged into the limelight, he was very uncomfortable. The subtitle to the song is A Walk in the Light Green. This refers to the colouring of the operational maps that the platoons would receive for their upcoming operations. If the map was mostly dark green, it meant they would be going through dense jungle, with the jungle able to offer cover from the enemy and fewer landmines. If the map was light green, it meant very little coverage from the enemy and plenty of landmines. Quite often the story to Was Only 19 is attributed to Frankie. 
However, the narrative comes from Mick Storen, and it's Mick's recollections that give voice to the song. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, like, had it not been, I mean, I've said this a million times, you know, uh, if, you know, like Frankie, you know, is, is the visible hero, you know, in I Was Only 19, but it's not actually about Frank. It's about, it's Mick Storen's story. You know, Frank is a bit player, um, a big, a big important part of it, certainly. And Frank was very generous with his time and very generous to allow his name to be used uh, and to be identified uh, as the person who kicked the mine in that particular mine incident. But the song is actually Mick Storen's story. It's not Frank Hunt's story. Uh, and people tend to forget that. Um, you know, I've read so many uh, pieces down through the years when, where they, they sort of say, oh, you know, and, and this song was written about Frankie Hunt. It actually wasn't written about Frank. It was written... It was written about Mick Storen, um, and uh, uh, you know, and, and we can sometimes forget the bravery that he showed, the courage he showed when he, you know, he stepped outside what was then the closed circle of Vietnam veterans and told his story to a songwriter in a left-wing folk rock band from Adelaide, and was hoping it was going to be okay. While the song is as authentic as any that's ever been written. John still had to alter a few things to make the song work. The mine blast did in fact take place on the same day as the moon landing, July 20th, 1969. However, nobody was going home in June. It's just that June rhymes with moon. Another misconception that's often attached to I Was Only 19 is that it's an anti-conscription song. While John was certainly no fan of the ballad, the song is not about conscription. The line that brings the confusion is the first verse and it's about Mick drawing the card. Mick wasn't a conscript to the army, he signed up of his own accord. Unlike the dread of when your number came out of the conscription ballot, drawing the card for the enlisted soldiers was something they were hoping to win. A call went out for volunteers to join the 6th Battalion in Townsville, and more than enough volunteers put their hands up. So to decide who would go, they picked cards out of a plane deck, and Mick pulled one of the highest cards. He was off to far north Queensland en route to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, he was the regular. Uh, and um, when they'd finished, when after the passing out parade, um, their sergeant said, look, we've, there are, <clears throat> I don't know, six or eight places um, in 6RAR, and 6RAR was about to start pre-deployment training up at uh, Canungra and, and Shoal Water in the jungle training areas. And, uh, and he said, look, if you want to go, I'll meet you in the mess hall after dinner and uh, we'll draw cards for those positions. So Mick, uh, Mick actually, you know, it was actually literally they drew cards. Those who wanted to go drew cards for the spots that were available in 6RAR. When their platoon commander, Peter Skipper Hines, stepped on the hidden mine, Mick was close enough to the blast to be showered with shrapnel. Frankie wasn't hurt in the first blast. When the medics arrived by chopper, there was nowhere to safely land. In the process of clearing an area so the choppers could land and evacuate the injured soldiers, Private John Needs tripped a second mine. And sadly, like Skipper Hines, Private Needs was also killed. Contrary to what John wrote in the song, yes, he actually did feel those pieces in the back, but the scale of what was going on around him, Mick considered his wounds as minor. He has been quoted as saying in one of his rare interviews with the ABC, it was just a hot little zap, a slight rush of blood, then it congealed. Yeah, yeah, he was, but he was, he was, um, he was far enough away that he really only got the remnants. He got, he got some, 
sprayed in the back, I think, with some some, uh, some fragments. Um, so he was uh, he was one of the platoon that had to you know chop out the the landing pad for the dust off chopper and uh, uh, you know go through the mine drill, which they had been through before. So they're all very well trained. Um, but I think it was when the um, I think that um, in that and I'm not quite sure exactly when it might have been when the dust off chopper came and and uh, the medics got out that uh, they tripped another mine. So it was just, it was a shit fight. The whole thing was a complete shit fight. The Channel 7 News helicopter gets a mention in I Was Only 19, and it was employees of the TV station who helped to create the film clip. The film clip was made um, by a, a news crew from Channel 7. There was a, um, a television ju- journalist with Channel 7 in Sydney, who was a Vietnam veteran too, and he heard the song, so he he got a news crew around after hours with all the with all the gear, all the lights, and you know, in those days, um, you know, a new news van went everywhere with lights and sound equipment and everything. So we set up a little kind of a little sort of room in his lounge room, and 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 basically, I was the Vietnam veteran, you know, thinking about the war, and then of course we overlaid all that. Um, uh, veteran veteran footage. So Dave Allen and Sue Susie was his girlfriend at the time. She married him, and and she was uh, um, a video editor. And she went and, and got all the uh, all the stock footage from Australians in Vietnam and put the whole thing together. It was was you know it was done in a couple of days, really quickly and really cheaply. There's not too many songs they get the opportunity to have a second film clip made. But thanks to the crew from the movie Danger Close, I Was Only 19 now has a second film clip. If you want to check it out, we've included a link to this clip in the show notes. The other one that was um, a great film clip that was done as a favour by the production team from uh, Danger Close, um, which was a film about the uh, uh, the Battle of Long Tan. And uh, they made a clip um, from Vision that they shot it was absolutely sensational, absolutely sensational, you know. But that was a full-on film production, and they had helicopters and blokes in, you know, you know, jungle fighting and and everything. So, but it was lovely of them to do it, and it was a great, a great, great clip. But the one that we did, you know, in one night at Dave Allen's place, that that's the that's the that's the one that that kicked the ball out onto the oval. That's for sure. When the song hit number one in Australia, initially John had no idea he'd topped the charts. Yeah, I wasn't even in the country at the time. I was in Asia on my honeymoon with Denny. So um, I only learnt that it had gone to number one sitting in the garter outside the Jakarta post office after we'd been you know, lost in Sumatra for a couple of months. I had no idea. Really, I was having a, you know, we were having a great time in Sumatra. It was fantastic. As John has already mentioned, Red Gun were anything but radio favourites. However, that quickly changed with the release of I Was Only 19. The thing that kicked it off absolutely was um, was Keith Fowler from 3XY. He, um, he was the program director for 3XY, and 3XY was an AM station in those days, just before the rise of FM. 
and 3XY was, you know, whatever Keith Fowler did on 3XY, um, the rest of the country followed suit. So um, we couldn't get on 3XY. We weren't we weren't cool enough to get on 3XY. I mean, you have to understand that we were the strangest band, you know. We were we were left wing, you know, university graduates with a socio political agenda, um, you know, playing folk music. Well, well, not folk music, but we were playing acoustic music, uh, and the whole world was about you know big trucks, big range of trucks with big black boxes and lots of crews, and you know, you know, guys jumping around under lights and sweating a lot. Um, and we were so different. Redgum may have not been in the pop star stratosphere, but they had a growing fan base. The band outgrew the independent label, Larrikin Records, and they signed with Epic Records. Well, we weren't even, you know, we, we, we weren't even taken very seriously, except I have to say our record company did because our record company knew that even though we weren't pimping around on Countdown every Sunday night, um, we they knew that we were selling more records and lots of the other bands that they had on their roster that they they poured huge amounts of money into. You know they knew they you know they came and signed Red Gun. They were a multinational company and they knew what our record sales were like and they saw us play and there was a couple of them there who understood that this is this is right outside our job is to sell records. Um, you know, and they, they said, these guys sell records, they should be with us. And we were with a independent label, um, you know, that, that did great work, but really we'd outgrown them. We, you know, that they couldn't, um, even before 19, they couldn't keep up with the demand for our record. They couldn't, they, they didn't have enough dough to print them. They didn't have enough dough to, they, you know, they couldn't get them into the shops. Um, fast enough, um, you know. So we were pretty frustrated that we there was a you know huge untapped market for red gum stuff, but the record company didn't have the you know the financial muscle to you know produce and distribute. So when the multinational record company came along and said, "We know you guys sell records. We think you're good. We will." You know, we will let you do what you want to do. We don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. You can do and say whatever you want. All we want to do is sell and distribute the records for you. We went, yeah, absolutely. One of the most pleasing things for John is the recognition the song has received from Vietnam veterans and their families. It's always a special moment for him when they tell him of the positive impact the song has had on them. Oh, that's, yeah, that, look, that's extraordinary. You know, I mean, and that happens even today. Um, you know, and I am, uh, you know, I'm very grateful that I was chosen, if you like, by by the force to to write. I was only nineteen and help help bring help bring our veterans home, help help Australians understand um, what it was like to be a Vietnam veteran, and 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 uh, uh, you know, very 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 proud. Um, you know, and I don't really care all that much about about money. You know, you. You know, I know I've got friends who've got a lot of money um, and they're no happier than I am. So, yeah. We've already released two episodes on Normie Ray. Episode 12 takes a look at his first big hit, It Ain't Necessarily So. And episode 35, which is part of our Vietnam War special, where Normie tells us about some of his experiences serving in Vietnam. As we mentioned earlier, 
Normie holds I was only 19 close to his heart. I have to say that the biggest amount of thanks that we could ever have uh, would need to go to John Schumann and Redgum for recording and, and releasing I Was Only 19 because it was at that moment which created for the, uh, the, whole, uh, the whole nation an aha moment. It's sort of like, aha, oh dear, oh, what have we done? Yeah, look, that's nice of Norm to say say that. I mean, I love Norm. He's just he's fantastic, and he's a great artist, and he's he's very funny. And you know, and I I feel very. I mean, in a part, I feel sorry for him because you know he was the king of pop. He was he was right up there, you know. And he went to an unpopular war, and when he came back, you know, the whole clean cut kind of you know, image that Norm had uh, that that gave away to you know long hair and jeans and you know, um, you know long guitar solos and you know and all that sort of stuff. So so Norm, you know, Norm really sacrificed his career, or his career was 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 really hamstrung significantly by by his participation in the Vietnam War. You know, he came back and he was a Vietnam veteran. You know, and he came back to a country that had comprehensively turned its back on on the Vietnam War, and he had to he had to fight and struggle hard, you know, to stay in the music industry, and did what he did because nobody was interested in clean cut guys who sang sang like angels. And Norm Norm's got a sensational voice, you know, he's just great. So he he's had to re, really reinvent himself all the way along the line. So for him to say something like that is is, is a great compliment. As I said, I'm very, very fond of Norm, and I'm, I'm very respectful. And I think, you know, in, you know, in, in the music industry, Norm, Norm got a, you know, Norm got dealt a bad, bad hand. Um, you know, he, as I said, he went away with a clean cut guy in a suit, you know, with nice hair. Um, you know, but being, you know, the king of pop, and came home, and the whole thing had changed. And 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 so, as well as missing that that major fashion step, um, he um, you know he also had the extra burden of being a Vietnam veteran, having fought in an unpopular war. And yeah, no, Norm's the real deal, and he he has my respect and my affection and my admiration. One of the more moving gigs that John has ever performed came when he played at Sydney's Domain for the Welcome Home Parade in 1987. It's a bit like a dream, you know. I, I remember. I think I was probably more moved. I mean, you, you know, you're doing this performance, and you just get out there, and you've got to, you know, you've got to play, and you've got to hear what you're doing, and you're singing this song, and people are, you know, there's millions of people there, and there's an emotionally charged atmosphere, and and they weren't there for me. They were there, you know, to welcome home Australia's Vietnam veterans. I think I was probably more moved emotionally uh, sitting in the back of a cab uh, from the airport going into the domain to play and I knew the march was underway. I didn't get to see any of it because I, you know, I flew in that day and um, and I saw these uh, squadron of Hueys fly over and um, I remember just... 
you know, because I'd spent a lot of time with veterans after that, of course, you know, because I wrote the song in 1983 and this was 1987. So there were four years of, of being with veterans and hearing their stories and, you know, being sort of a part of the veteran community. Um, but I remember seeing those Hueys and hearing that sound and feeling, you know, very, very moved. Had a little weep in the back of the, back of the, the car, back of the cab on the way to the domain. I, I vaguely remember them bringing Frankie in because Frankie was in and out of a wheelchair and they wheeled him on and his kids were there and I knew his kids and that was a surprise. Um, I just had to keep keep focused on what I was doing. Whenever John performs I Was Only 19 Live, the song takes an emotional toll. It does. It's not a song that you can play lightly. It's not. It's not like U.S. Forces get the nod or, you know, Eagle Rock or Come Said the Boy or, you know, um, The Girl That I Love or whatever. These are, um, this is about real people, real people, you know, real, you know, with, with hearts and souls and families and histories and, and all of that stuff. Perhaps the greatest honour John and I Was Only 19 has received is his lyrics are now enshrined on a wall inside the National War Memorial in Canberra. Etched in stone is the lyrics, then someone yelled out contact, and the bloke behind me swore. We hooked in there for hours, then a god almighty roar. It is a fitting tribute to a song that had changed the thinking of a nation. You know, I mean, look, everybody, you know, rolls the prayer mat out, you know, every time somebody mentions Paul Kelly's name or Garrett's name or Jimmy Barnes or whatever, but you know, I can't think of another songwriter in Australia who has their words inscribed on a national monument of such importance. And, you know, once again, that's more important than money and fame. You know, that, that's, that's something lasting, you know. I'll be dead and gone. And um, in a 100 years' time, there will be kids in that monument and they'll read those words. John had performed I Was Only 19 at Australian military bases all around the world, including at Tarankot in Afghanistan. Well, yeah, it's interesting. The song is still, um, you know, still has great currency. I remember being in Tarankot <clears throat> 2011 on a forces entertainment tour, and I, I remember, that, I mean, all these young diggers, you know, much younger than me, and most of them hadn't even been born when I was only 19, went to number one. But it was very much their song. It was their song, you know. And uh, I've heard so many stories about, um, like there was some guys I met from the SAS who, who told me that you know that, that, that when they when they graduated when they when they finished their course SAS course, which is very very demanding, they, they packed up and they put their bags in the corridors and they turned the lights down and they all stood outside their rooms and they played I was only nineteen over the speaker. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you can't ask for anything more, more than that as a songwriter. Sadly, the futility of war continues to create heartache in our community. It seems the politicians and decision makers haven't learnt much from the past. Well, you know, I mean, it tells the age-old story. It's old men who send young men off to war, you know, and it's always the youngsters who do it. And we're just seeing it again now, all those, all those men and women who served so bravely in Afghanistan, um, everything they, they did, everything they fought for, everything they died for and were wounded for is really for nothing. We'd like to thank John for taking the time to speak with us for the podcast. 
and would also like to take this opportunity to sincerely thank our past and present servicemen and women for your sacrifices. In 2008, John re-recorded I Was Only 19 as John Schumann and the Vagabond Crew. Hugh MacDonald also played on this recording, and it's available through ABC Music. You can still see John playing live all over the country. Here's John Schumann and the Vagabond Crew with I Was Only 19, A Walk in the Light Green. Mum and Dad and Denny saw the passing out parade Pakapanyum, it was a long march from cadets And the 6th Battalion was the next to tour It was me who drew the card We did Kanangra and Shoalwater before we left And Townsville lined the footpaths as we marched down to the quay this clipping from the paper shows us young and strong and clean and There's me and me slouch hat with me SLR and greens God help me I was only 19 From Vungtel, riding Chinooks to the dust at New Edad I'd been in and out of choppers now for months And we made our tents a home VB and pin-ups on the lockers And an Asian orange sunset through the scrub And can you tell me, doctor, why I still can't get to sleep? Night time's just a jungle dark and a barking M16 What's this rash Comes and goes, can you tell me what it means? God help me. I was only 19. And a four week operation, when each step could mean your last one on two legs, it was a war within yourself. But you wouldn't let your mates down till they had you dusted off So you close your eyes and you thought about something else And then someone yelled out, contact front! And the bloke behind me swore We hooked in there for hours the God Almighty roar Frankie kicked a mine The day that mankind kicked the moon God help me He was going home in June Frankie drinking tinnies in the Grand Hotel on a 36 hour wreck leave in Vungtau. And I can still hear Frankie lying screaming in the jungle till the morphine came and killed the bloody row. And the Anzac legends didn't mention mud and blood and tears and the stories. 
My father told me never seemed quite real I caught some pieces in my back that I didn't even feel God help me I was only 19 you tell me, doctor, why I still can't get to sleep Why the Channel 7 chopper chills me to my feet Watch this rash, it comes and goes Can you tell me what it means? God help me I was only 19 This is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! Just stop.